Numbers chapter 16, verses 1 to 35. Now Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them, and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near to him and all your brothers and the sons of Levi with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they and Aaron, tomorrow. And let every one of you take his censer and put incense in it. And every one of you bring before the Lord his censers, 250 censers, you also and Aaron, each his censer. So every man took his censer and put fire in them and laid incense on them and stood at the entrance of the tent of the meeting with Moses and Aaron. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die, as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men, offering the incense. And we'll end our reading from Numbers there, but pick up our reading in the book of Second Timothy. Again, helpful if you could have that open in front of you. It's page 995 on the Black Church Bibles. Second Timothy chapter 2, and we'll read verses 14 to 19. Paul writes, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, 
bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. We're going to be focusing on the second of those readings as we continue our way through the book of Timothy. Uh, but I'm hoping by the end, the first one won't seem completely random. Um, it, our passage in 2 Timothy actually quotes a couple of times from that passage. And so in some ways, the tone of that passage in Numbers should be in our minds and hearts as we reflect on our passage today from 2 Timothy. But let me lead us in prayer as we turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, as Graham prayed earlier, we do pray that you'd strengthen me to speak your word. We pray that I would rightly handle your word of truth. And please strengthen all of us to listen to you with the respect you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll see on the back of the notice sheet there's an outline and a question at the top, which is this. How much does it matter that leaders tell the truth? How much does it matter that leaders tell the truth? Some of this week I was stuck in bed, um, not feeling well, not able to sleep, and I listened to uh, Parliament Live, uh, which normally, I guess, would send you to sleep this week, unfortunately, was, was um, not, not quite so um, soporific as it might be. But I'm not actually talking about Parliament with that question. 2 Timothy is a book written to a church, focused on a church leader in that church, Timothy, this leader of the church in Ephesus. And so I'm asking, how much does it matter that church leaders tell the truth? We can see the, the kind of massive difficulties caused when you can't trust what politicians say on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the Atlantic, causes problems. But what about church leaders? How much does it actually matter that we tell the truth up here? When I say the truth, I'm not just talking about kind of integrity. I'm not just talking about saying true statements rather than lies. I'm talking about truth with a capital T, as in God's truth, God's gospel truth. We've been seeing through 2 Timothy. That's what's at stake in this book. Uh, Will Timothy stay true? That's a big question at stake. But hanging on that question is the even bigger question of will God's good news keep being passed on? Well, the good deposit of the gospel, as chapter 1 puts it, these, these precious words that Paul was given from God, will they be guarded, passed on, or distorted, denied, changed? And so our question really is, how much does it matter that church leaders tell gospel truth? How much does it matter? Well... Lives depend on it. Eternal lives depend on it. I'm not being melodramatic with that. If you've got 2 Timothy open in front of you, and I hope you do, page 995, um, the very first verse of the letter, chapter 1, verse 1, talks about the promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. And then when you read on to chapter 1, verse um, 10, He's talking about immortal life, eternal life. The fact that our Saviour Jesus Christ abolished death 
That's the good news of Christianity. In a world where everyone dies, there is an answer. There's forgiveness in a world where everyone has wronged God. Life in a world where everyone faces a ticking clock. The gospel is the most extraordinary thing, the most amazing news. And so people's eternal lives hang on what is said in pulpits, on what church leaders go around saying, what elders teach, what small group leaders teach. People's lives hang on it. And as we work through this passage in chapter 2 tonight, we're going we're gonna to see that again and again. So let's um, dive in with our first point. We're, we're starting at ch- verse 14 of chapter 2, and our first point is this. Church leaders must stick with the life-giving gospel and not indulge ruinous debates. That's point one. Church leaders must stick with the life-giving gospel and not indulge ruinous debates. And perhaps even as you, as you hear that point, you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, this isn't for me then. I'm not a church leader. I can, I can kind of have a, a gentle mental snooze for a while. Maybe later the talk will be relevant. But let me say, it's relevant to all of us that we know what church leaders like Timothy or me or Robin, Sam, Johnny, the other elders, you need to know what we should be doing, what we should be saying. Why do you need to know that? Well, it's a privilege actually in this church to serve in a place where people really do pray for us. I know that, and I I massively appreciate the fact you pray for us. But what shapes your prayers? How do you know what to pray for us? How do you know what God would have you pray for us? Well, 2 Timothy all the way through is helping us with that question, and this passage especially, I think. It helps you know what to pray. It helps you know what kind of church to look for. I guess there may be some here who are still kind of in the church shopping phase of the kind of September, October. Uh, I hope it doesn't go longer than September, really. But the church shopping phase of the year, whether you're a new student or new working in Edinburgh, what kind of church should you be looking for? What kind of leadership should you be looking for? And it helps as you encourage us, spur us on, ask us questions, and keep us accountable. This is a really relevant point for all of us, um, so please don't zone out. Right, point one then. Church leaders must stick with the life-giving gospel. Where am I getting the first half of that point from? Well, the first um, five words of verse 14. Let me read them again. Remind them of these things. Now, that needs a bit of explanation, doesn't it? Who are the them? Who are the these things? Um, The them, if you weren't here last week, the them are these people that Timothy is training. Look back to verse 2 of chapter 2, where Paul says to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. These trainees, these other church leaders, other elders that uh, Timothy is to train up, these other faithful pairs of hands to hold the precious gospel. That's the them we're talking about, verse 14. Remind them. Remind them of these things. What are these things? Well, what Paul's just been speaking about. So look at verse 8 of chapter 2. He's just told Timothy, you, Timothy, must remember Jesus Christ. And then he says, remind them of these things. Remember Jesus, Jesus who rose from the dead, Jesus, the offspring of David, that is the king. So remember Jesus, the risen king. 
He's right at the heart of the gospel message. Remind them, as I've reminded you, Timothy. And that risen king has made eternal life possible for all of us. So verse 11 of chapter 2, this saying is trustworthy, for if we've died with Jesus, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Remember for yourself, Timothy, and remind all of those people you train, whether they're church leaders, small group leaders, elders, preachers, remind them of the gospel, this good news that Jesus, the risen king, has made life available, eternal life available. Why do they need reminders? Because that will keep them going through thick and thin. They'll keep them going when they do have to endure and suffer. Remember those pictures of the athlete or the soldier or the farmer? Tough. It's a tough job. But it's worth it when you keep your eyes on Jesus, the risen King. It will keep them going. And, of course, it's what they're to tell others. It is the message. King Jesus has made eternal life available through his death on our behalf. Full forgiveness for free forever. Remind them of the message. So that's the kind of first half of point one. And so far that's all recap. That's stuff we've been hearing week by week. But notice the warning that carries on for the second half of verse 14. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. So as, as well as remembering the gospel and kind of sticking to the core message, they also need to be wary of something. And it's a strong command, isn't it? Be wary of quarreling about words. Look at how he puts it. Charge them before God. Charge them. That's a pretty strong thing. There's, there's one other charge in 2 Timothy. It comes in chapter 4. It's probably the one we're more familiar with. 4 verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, preach the word. Lots of us will be familiar with that if we know this book. And yet here's another charge, not to get involved with quarrels about words. And they are properly dangerous. Look at the end of verse 14. Look at what they do. They only ruin the hearers. Striking, isn't it? That's why I was saying at the top that people's lives depend on what gets said through this microphone. Ruin the hearers. Seriously dangerous. So this is a a big charge, a serious charge. It's something that anyone who's in teaching, Christian teaching ministry or leadership needs to take seriously. But actually there's, there's a big kind of nagging question in this verse. Um, It's actually, it may not be nagging you, um, but it's been nagging me for years, literally years. I think the more you ponder this command, especially if you're someone who's trying to kind of put it into practice, the more you ponder this command, the more puzzling it becomes. Because what kind of quarrels is Paul actually saying to avoid here? Is he saying a church leader or a Bible teacher should, should never say other people are wrong, should never engage in that kind of um, controversy, never get involved in an argument. But it can't be that, because Paul's about to challenge some false teaching in verse 17. And actually, if you look across the page um, to verse 25, 
he'll say to to Timothy in verse 25 of chapter 2 that he's to correct his opponents with gentleness. So it's not saying you can never get into a debate or you can never correct people, so it can't be that. And yet he is, look look up just to verse 23, for example. He says it again, verse 23 of chapter 2, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. It's like there's some debates you should get into, gently correct, and other debates you should go nowhere near, have nothing to do with them. So how do you tell the difference? Let's go back and see if the verse helps us. Verse 14 again, of chapter 2, remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Oh, okay, okay, I've got it. So it's, it's, it's don't get involved in a discussion that is kind of really focused on words. Maybe big ideas are fine, but don't get into the kind of nitty-gritty of what words mean. But actually, it can't be that either. Just have a look at chapter 1, verse 13, where Paul said to Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words you've heard from me. As in the words I've given you really matter. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit I give, I've given you. It's like, you've got to guard the words I gave you. And in a couple of verses, in verse 17, he's going he's gonna to name and shame a couple of false teachers. And their problem was that they were using the word resurrection wrongly. They were taking a Bible word and misdefining it. Misteaching a word that the Bible says. So that's even harder. It, it, it's not you can't get into any discussions or debates or disagreements. It's not that you shouldn't focus on words. So what does it mean? I mean, it's important. We're charged not to go anywhere near this. So how can you tell? Well, I, I used to, if I'd written this bit of the Bible, um, what I would have done is come up with a list here are some topics you should engage with. Here are some topics that aren't important and just, just, let, them, just let them slide. Just Don't even go there. It's not worth the time. It'll just ruin people. That's what I would have done. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit knows better than I do. The Holy Spirit, as he inspires Paul to write this book, doesn't just have an eye on the controversies of that generation, but an eye down the generations. Timothy was to pass on the gospel so that it would be passed on, so that it would be passed on, all the way to this generation, this culture. And across those 2,000 years and counting of church history, there have been all sorts of different issues that have arisen, all sorts of different ethical positions that the world around us has taken, all sorts of different philosophies that have challenged Christian truth, all sorts of different interpretations of the Bible. How does a church leader know which quarrels to get involved in? Well, not from a simple list of these ones and not these ones, but instead, verse 15, and this is our second point, verse 15 of chapter 2, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You see, rightly handling the Bible, that's the word of truth, rightly handling the Bible will equip church leaders and all the leadership throughout a church to know which battles to fight, 
to know which are the issues that people's lives depend on. Things like, when does the resurrection happen? And which are the things just to let slide, to not even go there? It's just speculative nonsense, not worth even the time of day to discuss. There's actually two answers in chapter 2 to that big question of how, how do you know which battles to, to pick? There are two answers. Our answer tonight is handling the Bible properly. Our answer next week is handling yourself properly. If a church leader um, is itching for a fight, and this is a word especially for some of us young men involved in Bible teaching ministry, if our character, if our godliness is not kept in check, if we're not humble, patient, gentle, or then we'll pick all sorts of wrong debates to get involved in. That's next week. Handle yourself carefully. But this week, it's about handling the Bible carefully. Those two things will keep Timothy and all those he trained engaging in the right issues. So let's get into verse 15 in a bit more detail. Um, Verse 15 again. And just have a look at how these leaders and Bible teachers are described in verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. We are workers. Remember the farmer, hardworking. It is hard work to to do what this verse commands. We're workers, and who do we work for? Is it the congregation? Uh, Is it the other elders? Uh, Is it those who give financially? No. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. That's why in verse 14, he said, charge them before God not to quarrel about words. It's why in chapter 4, verse 1, he'll say, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Fundamentally, church leaders work for Jesus, for the living God. That means we're accountable to him for every word we say. And if you are involved in leadership and and Bible teaching at that point, I guess, like mine, your heart might be trembling a bit as you think, how can I ensure, when I'm brought to account for how I've loved and served Jesus' people and how I've spoken from this platform, how can I ensure that I'm not ashamed but I hear that well done, good and faithful servant. What does my master want me to do? Well, verse 15, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's the key, rightly handling the word of truth. You may know we have a number of um, associates, ministry kind of trainees uh, that that are with us uh, for a two-year kind of apprenticeship. We call them MAPS. And if you were to kind of shadow a map for a week, um, as well as them thinking, what are you doing? Why are you hanging around? They'd also, the impression you'd get is, wow, they spend a lot of time on the Bible. So so two days a week, uh, they go to Cornhill, Scotland, a training course in Glasgow. And that has a real emphasis on trying to handle the Bible rightly. And then they come back to Chalmers, and we have some in-house training. So one morning a week, um, I'll, I'll have a session with them working through the bits of the Bible that we're going to teach in small groups around the church family. And they do lots of prep for the the Sunday club and the youth 
and groups that they teach in. Actually, working in the Bible is kind of all over the scheme. And that is a deliberate focus. It is a choice we've made. I'm regularly asked, oh, please could the maps uh, help with this or help with that? Or wouldn't it be good if they got some training in, in this area? Um, and almost always my answer is, oh, yeah, that, that would actually be really good. Lots of good opportunities, lots of good uh, possibilities for training. Um, but actually, almost always as well, I say, I'd love them to do that in time. But for these two years, we are focusing on their ability to listen to God in the Bible and their growth in godliness. Funny enough, the two things that 2 Timothy 2 says are so necessary, handle the word of truth rightly, handle yourself rightly, godly character. And I do hope that in future years they will pick up lots of other bits of skills and training and experience. Um, but as elders, we are, we are keen to get those fundamentals uh, in place early on. They actually remain the fundamentals. When, when 1 Timothy or Titus say, what should you look for in an elder? Those are the fundamentals. Godliness and an ability to teach. It's who Timothy was told to look for in chapter 2, verse 2. Uh, entrust to faithful men, there's the character requirement, who are able to teach others also. There's the Bible handling requirement. That is to say, when we look for who might be a small group leader here or who might go onto the map scheme or, or whatever other position of, of um, leadership or, or teaching, we're not just looking for who, who's going to be the most interesting communicator, who has the gift of the gab. We're looking for who will listen to God's words and who is godly. What does it mean? Let's, let's get a bit more into the detail. What does it mean to handle the word of truth rightly? We're talking about the Bible. That's the word of truth here. What does it mean to rightly handle it? The phrase literally is to cut straight with it, to cut a straight path. So think, think kind of Roman road, not the kind of meandering um, path hacking off through the bushes with some interesting diversions along the way. It's basically saying, look, Timothy, Teach it straight. Just read it straight. You say what it says. That is, don't twist it. Don't contort it or bend it. Don't soften it. And don't sharpen it. Don't squeeze it into your church's mold. Don't squeeze it into your culture's mold. Don't even squeeze it into your personality's mold. Just say what it says. Cut it straight. Now, as we go through this book in future weeks, we're going to see more and more why there's so much pressure not to cut straight. So much pressure to swerve from what the Bible actually says. There's pressure from my own desires. Chapter 3, we'll see that. There's pressure from the listeners sometimes, the itching ears who'd rather you said something different, chapter 4. We've already said in chapter 1 that the pressure to be ashamed, to not want to face the suffering that sometimes comes when you preach the real gospel. There's lots of pressure. But, but, but other weeks will handle that. Tonight, I just want us to notice that this 
verse 15 is acknowledging that there are right ways to handle the Bible and wrong ones. That may sound really obvious. I mean, it is really obvious, but I'm going to point it out anyway. There's a right way to handle the Bible, and there are wrong ways to handle the Bible. It is possible to misread or misuse, to distort the word of truth. Why am I making such a big deal of that when it's just so obvious? Well, I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation where someone says, look, I just can't believe in the Bible because it's all a matter of interpretations. There are just lots of different views. There are so many different denominations and churches, so many interpretations nowadays. So surely we might as well all just pick what we like. Isn't it better just to have a kind of pick-a-mix spirituality that suits you and not kind of judge other people's choices about what they take from the Bible? I think that's a very common view in our culture. I think sometimes people think that's a new challenge to Christianity. Like maybe it's something that's emerged since postmodernism and had a go at meaning in books and texts. But actually, it was already in play here in 2 Timothy. Within the lives of the apostles, within a generation of Jesus, already there were different interpretations of the message. Different definitions of the word resurrection, for example. It's not a new thing that there are some ministers who stand up and say, oh, the resurrection's not really going to happen in the future. It's not really physical. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It's just kind of in our hearts or something that's already happened to us all. It's not a new thing. Perhaps what's new is, at least for some, how, how in our culture, it, 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 until you think about it, it almost seems plausible that maybe meaning isn't, isn't there to be found. Maybe meaning is something we just bring to a text. You know that approach that says, it's not so much what it meant back then, it's what it means to me. And kind of as a reader, I'm the one who brings a lot of meaning to the text. Um, let me just say that uh, if you try that with... well. I'll give you an example. Um, so every so often, Jessie, my wife, gives me a shopping list. And I have learned that um, the meaning of the shopping list is actually defined by her, the author who wrote the shopping list, rather than by me, the reader. So she writes down, I don't know, bring two kilos of broccoli and an orange. And I come back with two kilos of burgers. I love burgers for the barbecue, again. And an orange football. Because, I mean, she said orange, I built a bit on, but that's okay, it's the right colour. It turns out she doesn't massively appreciate that kind of approach to meaning. And actually, it's all over the place in life. You, 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 we, life just doesn't work if you don't respect the person who wrote the words. Um, and yet, when it comes to the Bible, where surely the respect should go up, God matters far more than my wife. What God's saying about eternal life matters far more than a shopping list. And yet sometimes we go into the mode of, well, what does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? And maybe there's no real way of telling, no right answer. I think the new thing is that for some people that seems like a plausible way to read when actually um, it's not. And this passage is saying, no, there's a right way to handle the Bible. There is such a thing as false teaching of wrong interpretations. So when we do see lots of different interpretations of Christianity, lots of different viewpoints, like Paul was experiencing in his day as people wandered away from him to different messages, 
Or don't just throw your hands up and say, well then, what is truth? Is there such a thing as meaning? No. Verse 15, there is a word of truth, God's word, top-down truth, a a breaking in of good words, gospel words, life-giving words. And it's possible to distort them, to misinterpret them, to misuse them. Even godly Christians, some of us trying our best, sometimes don't get it right. Striking, isn't it, verse 15, do your best to present. We try our best, we don't always get it right. None of us are perfect readers, but there's all the difference in the world working hard to cut straight from just saying, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just say whatever I would have said anyway. I'll say what I like it to mean. That's why, as a preaching team, we do try and put good time and prayer and energy into preaching. It's why it's a good thing as a family, as a church family, and um, that we organize ourselves um, in such a way that actually our Bible teachers and elders are freed up to pastor people with God's word. And it gives you a question to ask whenever you hear one of our sermons. Again, this is why it's worth all of us hearing this, not just doing it as a kind of seminar um, for the elders and the Bible teachers in the church. Here's the question. Whenever you hear Bible teaching in this church family, ask yourself, did they cut straight? Did they rightly handle the Bible? Did what that man's just said actually come from what God says in Scripture? And I hope you're beginning to see that's not just a kind of nerdy academic question. That's not, not just something that matters if you're into that kind of thing, if you're kind of quite interested in the mechanics of how do you get a point out of the Bible. No, this is the difference between life and death, whether we keep proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the real good news. And that's what we're going to see in, in point three. So let's move on to our final point, point three. Um, avoid deadly divergence from that message. So rightly handle the, the Bible, the word of truth. That's the positive side, verse 15. And then verse 16 onwards, avoid deadly divergence from that message. Um, if you are new to this church, let me give you a, a, a few bits of kind of behind the scenes, why do we do what we do stuff. Um, you may have noticed you've been given a Bible. We give out church Bibles with the hope that they stay open during the sermon. That's why we'll sometimes say, please keep your Bibles open, it will help you. That is so you can check if we're cutting straight. Check for yourself. And we usually try and pick passages that are not absolutely tiny or absolutely massive. Because if there's a manageable chunk, like the paragraph we got today, you can kind of get a feel for, am I taking words totally out of context? Whereas if we were covering loads and loads, you just have to take my word for it. Um, We also have a a midweek meeting, a sermon prep meeting, where the the preachers will uh, present their outlines and get feedback from the team and questioning of, is that really what that verse is saying or what that passage is saying? There are no hard and fast rules on those kind of things, obviously. But and sometimes we will preach just a verse or just a topic. Um, but I do want us to have a kind of joint desire, joint effort to listen to God, just straight, just the way the Bible says it. And it's a good thing when you ask questions like, "Where did you get that bit from?" That's a great question. Whether it's in a small group, kind of, oh, which verse are you getting that idea from, or where did you see that in the passage? Great question. It's a great question to ask preachers as well. 
that bit, I just I didn't quite follow where, where you were getting it from. Um, now, we'll, we'll try our absolute best to, to um, accept those kind of questions with, with grace and humility. Uh, uh, sometimes good to, to leave it a day or two and then, then ask us the question. But it's a great question to ask. Great question. But on to point three, avoiding deadly divergence from that message. And this hopefully will motivate us all to take it seriously. Let me read from verse 16. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Let me just say, I love that noise, the noise, because it's the people are actually checking noise, actually following along, listening to God's word straight. Um, there, is, there, there are kind of two ways of doing theology present in this passage, and they're still present in our world today. There's one way that keeps coming back to the Bible to check, is what I'm saying, is what I'm thinking still in line with what God says? The kind of doggedly sticking with what Jesus and his apostles in the Old Testament talk, always willing to say, oh, hang on, no, I'm being speculative. That's wrong. That's not actually what it says. That's what we're trying to do, albeit imperfectly here. There's that approach. There's another way of doing, philosophy, uh, doing theology, and verse 16 describes it pretty bluntly, doesn't it? The way of irreverent babble. Irreverent babble. It is a very popular approach, sadly, especially in the West at the moment which basically downgrades scripture. So it, it lowers the importance of verse 15, describing the Bible as the word of truth, kind of absolute truth. It lowers the status of the Bible to become more of a kind of touchstone, just a, a beautiful expression of what people used to believe about God. And some of it will be wonderful, and some of it will be a bit out of date. And there are other thinkers today who can tell us other things about God. That kind of innovative speculative teaching and theology can be very appealing. Notice what it does here. Um, verse 16, it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Interesting, when you do redesign God or um, modernize God to agree with any particular culture, it turns out he agrees with us a bit more. He allows us to do whatever we want to get away with. We'll see in chapter 3 that people can be lovers of self or lovers of pleasure but have the appearance of godliness. That is, sometimes church leaders and teachers will, will put a cloak of respectability over a life with no repentance. Now verse 16 here doesn't actually give us much details, again, to, to identify a specific issue. Because Paul wants the radar to be kind of sweeping widely. He wants us to be on alert for any, any of this kind of fake chat. Stuff that's not coming from the Bible being cut straight. And if you want to know how dangerous it is, verse 17, just look at the image. It's an image of it spreading. Their talk will spread like, verse 17, what would you expect, yeast? I mean, that's often what spreads in the Bible, yeast. Their talk would... But interestingly, it's not yeast, verse 17 their talk will spread like gangrene. Why does he pick gangrene as the image? It's a disease that ruins a body, brings death, 
bit by bit. I'm sorry if you haven't had your dinner, but let me, let me describe how one of my Greek dictionaries explains the word he uses. This is a disease by which any part of the body suffering from inflammation becomes so corrupted that unless a remedy be seasonably applied, the evil continually spreads, attacks other parts, and at last eats away the bones. Gangrene was understood to be just a horrible disease, this kind of flesh-eating disease. Uh, One commentator puts it like this, this teaching eats away at the life of a church. I wonder if we take false teaching as seriously as Jesus does here. Sometimes it does need to be called out. Verse 17, Paul names and shames Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying the resurrection's already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. Look at how they got there. Verse 18, how did they get to this position of upsetting people's faith? Well, they swerved from the truth. That is, they didn't cut straight. They didn't rightly handle the Bible. And that can start in quite a small swerve, but you can end up in a very different place if it doesn't get checked back. We've heard about Hymenaeus before in 1 Timothy, so he's had plenty of time to come back to his senses, but he's refusing to change his tune. He's still saying the resurrection's already happened. Why was that appealing? Well, if you had a choice between Paul's gospel, which is suffering now, often endurance now, often in the Christian life, eternal glory and life to come, that's one option, option A, or you've got Hymenaeus saying, it's the good life now, your best life now. Jesus is raised, we are raised It's the good times. Forget all those people who talk about Christians suffering and struggling. No, 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 no. We're beyond all that. No wonder it was popular. No wonder it upset the faith of some. At which point, we can feel, I think, unsteady. When I mentioned that question about why there's so many different interpretations of Christianity, so many different denominations, so many different disagreeing versions... Sometimes that's not just a question kind of out there that people who aren't Christians have. Sometimes it's a question we have. What's actually going on? If, if this is true, why are there so many different voices? To which anxiety, verse 19 says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Those are the bits that are quoting from Numbers 16. God's church has had stuff thrown at it for a long time. In fact, even back in Israel's day, Moses, God's messenger, was opposed by different voices, different versions, actually. Uh, They thought Moses was being a bit exclusive, that only one high priest could kind of get close to God. They thought there should be a more open way. And... um, But God knew who his messenger was. And Paul echoes that to say to Timothy, remember the stakes. Sticking with God's message, God's messenger, is a matter of eternal life or death. It's messy at the moment, loads of different interpretations of the Bible. But it won't be messy when God divides with his dividing line. And there is one place where eternal life is secure. The Lord Jesus Christ. The real Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it matters that we cut straight. Our lives depend on it. 
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for those of us like me who have been entrusted with teaching your people, teaching your word. And there are many of us in different positions across this church family. We pray we would be rightly sobered by this charge. But we also pray we'd not be crushed by it. We pray we would be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you so much that the very gospel that we are to teach and proclaim from your word is the same gospel that saves us from all the ways we don't do that perfectly. And Father, we pray for us as a whole church family as well, that you would help us to help each other stick with your word. And Father, we pray for any here who don't yet know the eternal life that is in Christ Jesus, that you might open eyes and give us opportunities to talk. In Jesus' name, amen.